In conjunction with World Mental Health Day happening on 10th of October, as well as Suicide Prevention Day that passed on the 10th of September, Sick to Speak will be presenting a four-part podcast special dedicated to normalizing conversations about mental health. In part one today, you'll be hearing from Dina Murad, a reporter of a local newspaper who recently covered the issue of mental health and increased suicide rates during the pandemic. You will also be hearing from Dr. Stephen Jambunathan, the medical director and senior clinical psychiatrist with the Mind Faculty. He specializes in trauma, OCD, ADHD, and depression. This is a trigger warning as the episode will touch on issues surrounding suicidal ideation, domestic abuse, and self-harm. Next week, we will be speaking to Suhakam, the Human Rights Commission of Malaysia, as well as the youth-led collective who seeks to empower Malaysian activism, Missy Solidarity, on the issue of decriminalizing suicide. In this episode, however, Dina and Dr. Stephen will discuss the recent spike of suicide cases in Malaysia, the role that gender plays in the numbers we are seeing, how to spot signs of suicidal risk in loved ones, as well as what we can do to help those in need. This episode should not be taken as medical advice and you should still consult your own mental health care provider for help. And if you need someone to talk to, we have left some lines to contact in our show notes. To our listeners today, thank you for taking the time to learn, spread awareness and maybe even help someone else along the way. My name is Dina Murad um, and I'm a reporter based in Kuala Lumpur. I write weekly articles about topics that concern Malaysians and recently I wrote a few articles about how COVID-19 has affected the mental health of individuals and how this creates higher risk of suicide. I also wrote about how there is an increased risk to women and why this is so during the pandemic. I've been a psychiatrist for more than 21 years and I chose to sub-specialize in psychotherapy. So very often I don't use medication, but I use medication when I need to. I also have been trained in something called EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, which is used for trauma, for depression, for anxiety, and many other uh, mental illnesses. Why did I decide to write these pieces? Um, Malaysia is improving in terms of mental health discussions. Uh, Not enough, but there is positive change. And we know that the pandemic and subsequent quarantines uh, have put a lot of pressure on people with a history of mental health conditions, but also pressure on those without, as they encounter more challenges that come about during COVID. So over the past two years, we as a society have experienced quite a lot of disruptive changes. And the most obvious being increased isolation. And with that increased isolation and with that loss of social connections and support systems um, by way of friends and family, uh, many people were laid off or experienced loss of income. And there's the fear of the unknown in terms of financial security and job security. But beyond that, there's also the fear for health and the threat that COVID-19 brings, not just for us, you know, but, the loved one, but for our loved ones, our children, our grandparents, our parents. So all these stresses are compounded. Um, and when we lose loved ones um, 
to COVID or the thought of losing loved ones to COVID, that also eats at our mental well-being. If you look at the 2019 National Health and Mobility Survey, this was a survey uh, conducted before the outbreak of the pandemic. It recorded that close to half a million people in Malaysia suffered from depression. And this is all heightened during the MCO. And data shows that the impact, that there is significant impact of COVID on suicide um, cases in Malaysia. So as of July this year, uh, police have received 638 reports of suicide. And this is a 143% increase compared to the same time frame last year. It is it's quite significant. It, it amounts to about three to four cases of suicide a day. It's very worrying. And according to the police, right, the three major contributors of suicide among Malaysians were family problems, emotional pressure and financial constraints. These are all very relevant concerns that rise during the pandemic. The number of clients we see in this clinic and in most psychiatric facilities has skyrocketed. I would say almost doubled. And for those who have already been having psychological issues, many of them have become worse. Basically, um, anything to do with the mind has got three major components. Biopsychosocial, biological, psychological, social meaning, environmental. Biological would be the genetic predisposition. Psychological would be the way the person thinks. Social or environmental would be the stress that we go through in our daily lives. Currently with the MCO, that social component is playing a major role. I've coined a term called um, a social coma. We are all in a kind of coma now. And some of us are not even wanting to get out of that coma, although we can, because the gates are opening, but people are still stuck in that rut. Coming to suicide, numerous um, authorities have reported uh, a great increase in the rates of suicide. Not to mention unreported suicide. Not to mention unreported attempted suicide. And this is all happening across all age groups from, from as young as uh, even six and seven years old. We're getting people who are depressed. One of the main things is um, um, confinement lack of socializing, struggling with online studying, and a lot of behavioral issues have been uh, on the rise. What's triggering the biological part will be the psychosocial part, which is at the moment, without doubt, all the ramifications of the MCO and the social paralysis and the changes that we've got to live through living at home for adults having to work from home and having kids at home and having to deal with the kids' studies at home. Many families are having serious problems. So yes, the psychosocial part is playing a big role at the moment. How has the pandemic affected suicide rates in Malaysia? So there is an increase, as I've mentioned earlier. Uh, on one hand, there is the uh, physical and psychological isolation that people may experience during COVID-19. There's the uh, external impact, the financial problems, the job security, 
There's a lot of death happening as well, and we are losing many family members and close friends to COVID-19. Because of um, COVID SOPs, uh, many of us are unable to perform the last rites and traditions, and these are very important traditions or important practices in our culture, and not just in our culture, but in in human behavior as well. So, in in Malaysia, right, the past year we've had so many people who succumbed to COVID. But even if a loved one did not die of COVID, when a person close to us passes away during this time we are not able to balik kampung to say farewell to them, for example. If someone is from a different state, um, to say farewell, we can't bury them, we can't mourn them. Um, if a family member dies, um, for example, in Penang and you are in KL, so you, you might not be able to go and, and pay your last respects. And there is no closure there or there is a lack of closure there. So I think this is another factor that we have to consider. Um individuals who lose loved ones during COVID and how this might affect their mental well-being and their state of um, mental health. I suppose it varies according to culture, varies from country to country and culture and religion and other social influencing factors. But generally worldwide, it, it is well established that in general, it is the male gender at a higher risk of committing suicide. Yes, the female gender having maybe more depression, maybe having suicidal thoughts or, or self-harming behavior, but in general to complete suicide, the male gender is at a higher risk. So the gender paradox uh, refers to how although women in general have more suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation, across the world more men die by suicide. And why is this so? So studies conducted, um, at least this were before the pandemic, they found that women were generally less likely to die of suicide because women's um, problem-solving strategies favor consulting peers for assistance and talking to people for assistance. Women were also found to be more ready to accept help compared with men um, who were found to place a higher value on independence. I, I wouldn't say that women are, per se are uh, at a risk of higher risk of more mental health issues. But in depression, statistics have shown that uh, women do get depressed more. And why do men commit suicide? Well, it's a tough one. But perhaps having to be the head of the home, having to be the sole breadwinner at, at certain times, certain cultures, perhaps there's a, a different kind of pressures. Similarly, women have different kind of pressures. Traditionally, the, being the person who runs the home, that's not easy. And it, it becomes worse when you run the home and have to also work outside the home. So there's so many uh, factors. You asked if the gender paradox in suicide applies in Malaysia. Um, the national the national suicide registry, which ran from two thousand seven to two thousand nine, it shows that men are more likely to die by suicide in this country. The twenty nineteen National Health and Morbidity Survey, meanwhile, shows that two point six percent of women in Malaysia have depression compared with two percent of men. It must note, though, that depression is not equivalent to suicidal ideation, although depression may affect it. At a cursory look, it does seem like the gender paradox may apply um, in Malaysia, at least pre-pandemic, but I don't want to be influenced by data bias. 
So there will be other variables that affect the link between gender and suicide, which we haven't explored. The difference now, at least um, since COVID-19, is that the prolonged lack of interaction and the prolonged isolation from support networks will have an effect on people. And this may have um, an adverse effect on women's coping mechanisms, not allowing them to communicate and seek help as easily as they could before the MCO. Any thoughts from thinking about death, from thinking about what happens after you die, from wishing that you did not have to suffer so much by not caring about your health, by giving up hope on your on yourself. Now, those would be the milder forms of suicidal ideation, escalating all the way up to wishing you were dead, wanting to die, and eventually planning to die. So that whole range would be suicidal ideation. Anything nihilistic or anything that links anybody to hopelessness and death. Why I decided to write about um, suicide among women is because of this. Um, from 2019 to May this year, the police recorded about 1,700 suicide cases. Of that number, 1,427 involve women, right? While about the other 281 involve men. Uh, youth, uh, young people were especially vulnerable. So this data is very, very different from past trends. I'm not sure if there was a mistake. I've contacted the police for more information. I've not gotten a response yet. Because if you look at global data and even Malaysian data pre-pandemic, it shows a historical preponderance of suicide among males. For example, males were three times more likely to die by suicide. But if you take in the recent data by police, the one I mentioned earlier, the patterns uh, suggest that women have become far more at risk in Malaysia, five times over men, in fact. So there is a humongous, there's a, there's a big shift. Is the data accurate? Perhaps, perhaps not. I would prefer to look at the micro data first, you know, rather than just a blanket statement. Nevertheless, um, this is quite concerning. There are similar patterns in Japan and Korea where there is an increased risk of suicide among women. And the conditions created by COVID-19 also disproportionately affect women. So let's take a look at job insecurity. Many women have found themselves unemployed um, due to the pandemic and have experienced loss of income to support their families. And most women in Malaysia are in sales and service sectors. And this is one of the most affected sectors with the highest retrenchment rates and salary cuts. If you look at a Kazana Research Institute study, this was from 2018, it found that nearly 30% of employed women in Malaysia are sales and service workers. So you can see how they are disproportionately affected. There are also fewer women in the labour force in Malaysia, right? Uh, this already affects their financial stability even before COVID hit. The formal labour force participation rate among women is only about 55% compared to 80% of men. So there are already those financial limitations uh, by gender. A lot of women are also in the informal working sector. The International Labour Organization it found that among the informal economy workers in Malaysia, women are overrepresented in high-risk sectors. These are sectors which were significantly affected by the pandemic. For example, the wholesale and retail trade, manufacturing, accommodation, food services, and so on. There's another study by the Institute of Strategic and International Studies, ISIS, 
The report, a release earlier this year, found that not only have women in Malaysia experienced a far greater fall in employment compared to men, but women's employment has also been much slower to recover. In fact, younger women were the hardest hit by employment losses. So, suicide data from police shows that younger people were more at risk. And this is very concerning for young women. The second thing I'd like to talk about is the double burden and household care responsibilities um, at home. So, we are in a society that's quite patriarchal. Um, there's an inequitable distribution of care and household chores on women. And this can contribute to feelings of depression and heightened anxiety. According to um, KRI's 2019 report, Malaysian women um, assume more responsibility for unpaid care despite working almost the same number of hours as men in paid work. So women actually do two jobs, technically, um, their paid work and their unpaid work. Um, in the same ISIS report I mentioned earlier, it found that women in Malaysia took on three times more unpaid care work at home compared with men. And this was before the pandemic. After um, the amount of unpaid care work has only increased. Also, when children are not able to go to school and are at home most of the time due to COVID-19, and childcare services also grind to a halt, someone has to quit and take on the full-time care work. Inevitably, it's the women. Um, first, because of social pressure to be the housewife, but also because of the gender wage gap. Men in Malaysia generally get paid more than women, and it is often the lower paid partner who will be the one who has to forego their job to take over the childcare responsibilities. So in Malaysia, it's usually the women then. But this is not just limited to Malaysia. Um, many global studies also highlight how domestic work and childcare has increased significantly during the pandemic. And it's women who mostly end up bearing these additional burdens, often due to skewed um, social structures and gender roles. Now let's also take a look at the link between domestic violence and suicide during the pandemic. So because of COVID-19 and the successive lockdowns that we've experienced, women are now at higher risk of domestic violence and sexual assault. Many women, for example, are quarantining with and cannot escape their abusers. So if you look at the situation, the economic situation that many families face now, and with this increased financial burdens on the family, there are abusers who take out their frustrations on female partners or female family members. So being a target of domestic abuse um, affects someone's mental health in a very harmful way and leaves them at higher risk of suicide. Suicide, mainly due to depression, is very treatable. However, in some cases, they are very treatment resistant. There are ways of treating that too, but sad to say, um, suicide still does happen because some people who are very determined don't talk about it. In fact, hide it so well that you don't, don't even suspect. I've had colleagues, or clients, friends, family who've come in to say, but he was just so cheerful yesterday. And or this person is the one that seems to be helping everybody always. Why did she do it? She's always listening to people's problems. I had no idea that this person was depressed. On the contrary to what we all think, um, talking about suicide is not taboo. Asking a person about suicide is not wrong. It is the right thing to do. 
we would think that, oh, if we ask or talk about suicide to somebody, we might uh, trigger and give them a, an idea. That is not true. When one starts talking about it, it actually, there is actually a relief and then comes help. You have to ask in a very gentle way. It's not like, do you want to die? Or are you suicidal? Um, uh, in a very gentle, mild, minute way, like sometimes some people, when they're up against the wall, they feel like giving up. Has that ever happened to you? Sometimes some people just feel hopeless and they just wish that God would take their lives. Sometimes uh, some people just wish they weren't alive. Actually, some people even think of taking their life. Have you ever thought of that? So you decenter the person from the problem and then you include the person because you're talking about somebody else first and then you talk about directly to the person and you'll be surprised by the time you 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 asked a couple of those questions the person might be wailing and crying with regards to family members or loved ones or friends we have to look out for signs and symptoms of depression social withdrawal, not interacting as much, a loss of interest, uh, a deterioration in level of functioning, and um, sometimes dropping hints. Family often take it lightly or, or, or sort of go into denial when people say things like, oh, I'm getting tired of life, or life is such a drag. I wish I didn't have to, to go on like this. These are quite obvious hints, but it might be too subtle for us. Um, I would say losing interest in what one normally does is a, a very significant sign of depression. Because sometimes some people may not say they're depressed, they may not feel sad, but they might just, they might just start losing interest, becoming more withdrawn, spending more time in their room not eating. Any suicidal ideation is immediately an emergency. It does not mean that you always have to rush to emergency immediately. With having somebody around you for 24 hours or for the whole day, always being with you. You could go and see a doctor the next day. What we have in Malaysia is extremely good for mental health care. All hospitals, especially the general hospitals, have a psychiatric department and all emergency units will always have a psychiatric medical officer on call 24-7. It's a bit tough now. Things are a bit stretched because of the MCO and COVID. But regularly, there's also in every general hospital, uh, a clinic where you can just walk in to see a psychiatric trainee who will consult a psychiatrist. Now, that'll be from the government side. On the private side, um, there are numerous psychological services. There are many private psychiatrists. Where I serve at the MIND faculty, we are the first private psychiatric hospital, but we do not have inpatient facilities. But Clients can always walk in and there'll always be somebody to see anybody in, in urgent or dire straits and direct them to the right places. 
What can we do to help someone in need and where can we go to find help? So first, we shouldn't judge. We need to destigmatize suicide, be considerate, listen and provide support. So we can also assist them to call lines, for example, uh, Talian Kasih, uh, Talian Bari Bear, which is for children, Befrienders, uh, Mercy Malaysia has set up a COVID-19 psychosocial line. And if they speak Mandarin, there's Lifeline. So uh, beyond that, it's hoped that a separate public helpline can be introduced specifically to cater to mental health support. Um, and this can complement pre-existing helplines like Talian Kasih, which primarily focuses on assisting, assisting victims of domestic violence and child abuse. So a specific hotline for mental health support is crucial. But care lines are not enough just to have care lines. Right now, attempted suicide is a crime in Malaysia. Under Section 309 of the Penal Code, a person can be jailed up to one year, fine or both. And from January to June this year, 175 people have been prosecuted. They were charged in court for attempted suicide. And a pressing method is to change the law and decriminalize it. So we need to look at it as a mental health issue and provide support. And this will help to destigmatize and increase discussion. As Malaysians, we have to add our voices and add to the pressure calling for decriminalization of suicide. Next, we can keep connected to friends and family and maintain those connections. These are very hard times and vulnerable friends may slip into a dark place. But even friends that we didn't know were vulnerable. Um, we don't know their situation and what we're going through. So having that network and support system would be very valuable. So have your video calls, WhatsApp them occasionally. You don't know, like sometimes they're saying, hey, I miss you, you know, I hope you're doing well. These kind of messages, you don't know the impact that it can have on someone who is in a, is in a dark place. So whatever we can do to extend the connection, um, that would be good. Next, I think postvention treatment should be considered as well. So postvention treatment or providing support for bereaved uh, friends and family of suicide victims is also needed as they are also a highly vulnerable group. And uh, we also need to push for affordable and accessible mental health care and rehabilitation support. In Malaysia, it's very expensive and it's very hard to come by. And a lot of people who are out there seeking help have that difficulty accessing it. So we need to open up those barriers. Finally, the last thing I want to talk about today is like finances and it plays a role. Um, the government needs to ensure that people's homes, their income, their access to healthcare, both mental and physical, um, are protected and make sure that people can bring food to the table. So these needs to be protected. And also access to safe spaces for those who are victims of domestic uh, violence and abuse. Psychiatry is just another field in medicine. It involves an organ called the brain, which controls the mind. As you would go to see a surgeon for appendicitis or an ENT doctor for a nose problem, please don't feel a taboo to see a psychiatrist. We are also doctors and we also treat medical conditions. Mental health is one of the major causes of disability in the world, according to WHO. And there are lots of psychiatrists take that first step, come and see them and realize that they are also human and people are accepting it. The stigma is gradually going away. 
Thank you all for listening to this episode. And thank you so much to Dina as well as Dr. Stephen for sharing your insights with Seek to Speak. I have left some links in the show notes should you wish to contact them further. Do join us for part two of our special, dropping next week, where we will be discussing on the issue of decriminalizing suicide. And if you'd like to take part in our mental health special, please do DM us or check out the form in our show notes. We are looking for stories and views on common mental health myths as well as misconceptions. If you have ever experienced or observed any discrimination, stereotype, or stigma when it comes to mental health, please let us know. We would like to debunk these harmful misconceptions and destigmatize the conversation. And we would love to hear from you.